1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Recep Tayyip Erdogan is a towering politician. He's dominated Turkey for 20 years and is now being compared to Ataturk as a man who's changed the direction of Turkish society. And that matters not just to Turkey, but to the international community more generally, partly because of Turkey's geostrategic position, but also because he has great influence on the future direction of political Islam. So what has he done? What does it signify? And where is he headed? Well, Demeter Bechev has studied the man for his book Turkey Under Erdogan. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And let's just begin, if, if we can, with his personal story. What sort of a family was he born into?
1: Well, he comes from uh, lower middle class Background: uh, His family had moved to Istanbul, one of those areas not far from uh, to downtown, but really uh, sort of on the periphery. And he epitomized this whole generation of people who headed west from their original native cities and and, and villages in the heartland for the pursuit of a better life and life opportunities. His father came from the east of Turkey in the Black Sea region, so he was a man of modest means, but one thing that defined the the strata, the the group uh, in those urban neighbourhoods was conservatism, not just piety, but also as an ethos in, in social life. And it's something that has been mythologized in various forms, including a Biopic that uh, came about f- a few years back about the young Erdogan, how he grew up uh, in the neighborhood and made it of uh, the social ladder. And those people tend to be very aspirational. Uh, Erdogan has, with his life story, but also his policies, tapped in- into that, uh, hoping for the better for their children. They'll have a modest education, but they'll certainly be uh, hopeful that their offspring will do better. And in the case of Erdogan, one other aspect that might be uh, it's interesting is that he comes from an area which is ethnically mixed. It's very likely that his family is ethnically Georgian. But as Erdogan has stated on more than one occasion, what makes you Turkish ultimately is not ethnicity, but uh, religion. Uh, so Sunni Islam is the common denominator, and it's therefore central to Turkish identity in the way that also was the conduit for his family to connect to, to the Turkish mainstream. So he's, in many ways, the epitome of the real Turkey, something that he has exploited throughout his career. There is um, the Turkey of Atatürk, of the Kemalist self-entitled elites in the bureaucracy, in the military. And there is the real Turkey, which is at peace with its ethnic diversity, but also very much committed to Islam and traditionalism and open to the modern world, as it were. So his family is where the story starts, pretty much.
0: Presumably, as he was being brought up in Istanbul then, there would have been many others like him with very similar backgrounds who would have had rather a frustrating life, is that right? Who, you know, had aspirations, but the economy and the political system wasn't really there for them to fulfil those aspirations. Yes, but we shouldn't overplay
1: this theme of uh, marginalization, which of course the AKP has put forward as its light motive. Because, I mean, Turkey was hierarchical and um, sort of elitist uh, in some sense, but also it was always open for, for people to make it up in social hierarchy. they several examples before one of, of people of modest means who rose to the top. In fact, the political system that Turkey built, of course, very very um, ex- exclusionary with the military and without the authoritarian gene, but at the same time defined by uh, relatively free and fair elections, open possibility for this sort of retail slash populist politics, which... sought to mobilize people like Erdogan, or more broadly, the conservative heartland, and to bring them into national political life. So it it is ambiguous. I mean, yes, Erdogan had a rough start, but it's not that all channels were closed for him and and there were avenues uh, to to make it up. And what turned out, just uh, the risk of jumping ahead of myself, um, such uh, platform springboard for his career turned out to be the islamist movement and uh, so then that was the the launch rocket for Erdogan's career
0: we will get onto that uh, obviously the whole question of islam and the role that's played in his his career later but ju- just looking at the whole political career uh, from beginning to to today how successful has he been electorally can you just sort of spell that out for us
1: Well, tremendously, despite the occasional setbacks, and again, a very uh, unclear future given the critical election next year. But he has prevailed in a succession of electoral races and also referendums, and he has used the ballot box as his instrument to uh, neutralize, subdue his rivals, especially the incumbent elites. And... He has used the majoritarian logic of electoral competition to reshape Turkey in his image. And the critical point was 2017 with the constitutional referendum which redesigned the political system and established a presidential regime. So by any count, he has made the most of, um, of elections and the electoral process.
0: And uh, just one other broad point, he is associated in the West mainly with his Islamism. But in terms of Turkish politics, I guess one of the, you know, the the big things of his career has been confronting and getting on top of the military, which, you know, was a massive achievement.
1: Yes, and it speaks to the fact that Islamism was not a fixed thing. Many uh, opponents of Erdogan, for instance, would point to tactical alliance between the Islamists and the national outlook movement Erbakan and the rest with the military around the time of the 1980 coup which played a critical role so back then uh, Islamists were fellow travellers and the military actually introduced religious education into the school curriculum as a bulwark to what they saw the the threat of um, Communist infiltration. And it's only later in the 90s and when the relationship between the two players turned sour. And by the time Erdogan arrived on the scene as the mayor of Istanbul and later as prime minister, the battle lines were drawn. But it's just to, to say that this confrontation went to different stages. And one other thing about Islamism, that it went ideologically through different permutations. The original ideology of Miragurush combined sort of commitment to Islam as an organizing principle of society with a critique of the West, um, very much in the tune of uh, the Third Worldism that was fashionable with the leftists at the time. Er- Erbakan opposed NATO, opposed Turkish ambitions to join the EU at the time. What Erdogan did later on was to um, splinter for this movement, and uh, repackage Islam as uh, friendly towards the West, That was post 9-11. He embraced wholeheartedly the EU and capitalism, economic liberalization. And it was a totally different version of political Islamism. And now we're in Chapter 2 when, and it's a long conversation how we got there, but suffice to say that the the, the version of Islamism right now is much more nationalistic and right-wing, open to other factions in the centre-right, the Nationalist right, Action Party, but also uh, anti-Western Eurasianists, who uh, are very critical of the United States um, and see Turkey as a beleaguered fortress that has to fight for its existence and its prosperity in a hostile world. Uh, and it's a very different image and, and version of Islamism. And that's just in the span of this, his career that he moved from those three stages.
0: So so exactly. So to summarize all that, he he, he started with a very powerful military. He now has control of the military. And he started with a lot of pro-Western positions as ended up with many more sort of Islamist nationalist positions.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And he not just overpowered the military and the state, but he took over. Um, So many of the authoritarian reflexes of the Turkish state have remained the same. And the litmus test is the Kurdish issue. But Erdogan co-opted that and actually um, sort of uh, switched sides. That's why a lot of people that were amongst his fiercest critics in the early days are now amongst his partisans because, in their view, that he had he he saw the light, embraced Turkish nationalism and the idea of the strong state. Uh, but also, uh, what the AKP and Erdogan gave to the Turkish state was legitimacy. Before, you could argue that um, the incumbent elites, nationalistic and status as they were, didn't have the backing of society at large, a mass political force as they appeared at least in, in the old days, because now its support is eroding, injected a sense of cultural authenticity, cultural legitimacy, so the states, heavy-handed, as it were, represented the true Turkey. There was a majority of the population behind it. Um, and that's that's how Erdogan rolled. So he, he fought the military, he fought the bureaucracy, but at the end of the day, he overpowered them and he co-opted them and gave them place in the new setup.
0: Yeah, I mean, there must be people in Egypt, in Pakistan, thinking, I wonder if someone could do that here, because, you know, they're facing these very strong militaries that seem unassailable, and yet Erdogan has shown the way, hasn't he?
1: Yes, but one thing to say about the Turkish military it's not that I was a fan at any point. But if you want to draw the comparison with other countries uh, in Muslim-majority Muslim majority societies, the military was involved in running the state after the coups, but it always retreated uh, and uh, was happy to hand back power to civilian politicians, elected politicians. There was no extended military period. Which says Turkey, apart from bulk of um, the global south. I mean, think about Brazil, for instance. So even Greece, where uh, the military ran the show for seven years, that was uh, unheard of uh, in Turkey. So they did allow space, even in the old days, to um, people like Erdogan so long as they didn't overstep certain red lines. Uh, that was the the twist in the story. And the AKP initially managed to push and push and push those lines. And when there was a Frontal clash towards two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, when there was a test of wills. Erdogan managed to win win the race, and and the military was marginalised. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure that serves as an inspiration to many people around. Certainly uh, during the Arab Spring, when lots of um, folks out there were very hopeful about Egypt, but. Turkey is unique in many respects, um, and it's hard to replicate its experience elsewhere, I find. Um, That was probably one of the lessons learned from this Arab awakening.
0: Okay, let's deal with some specific issues that Erdogan has grappled with. And, you know, we've touched on this a bit, but just to get a a clear readout on his attitudes to Western Europe and the European Union. So he, he started off wanting to be, you know, championing Turkish membership of the EU. Did that reflect a personal attachment, quite common at the time, looking up to the West, looking towards, um, probably wanting to travel to the West to be part of Western culture? I think
1: so, yeah. Um, the thing is that even amongst Turkish conservatives, the West has always played a role, just because of life, really. I mean, it's, if you look at all those places like Germany, Austria, uh, France, Belgium, and so on and so forth, they tend to come from, again, in Anatolia, sometimes the East, because of the impact of the Kurdish conflict. So th- those Euro Turks, the, the backbone, the relationship, the social level, very often the same people who'd vote AKP. These are not the so-called White Turks of, of Western metropolises. And therefore, you could say that yeah, Erdogan needed the West because it uh, was an ally in those um, days when he had to fight for his survival against the military and the rest. So it was a marriage of convenience. But I think it also reflects a, a sociological reality that Turkey, and by Turkey I mean across the board, has a very dense linkage to to the West, which goes through the economy. And, and through society, despite everything, the reorientation of Turkish foreign policy, trade, and, and so on and so forth. Turkey continues to trade and depend on investment um, from the West. So any anybody running the, the show in Ankara, irrespective of the political orientation they have, will have to keep an eye on the West and Western Europe and the EU first and foremost invest into this relationship. And I think that's the state we are in with Erdogan. His uh, anti-Western rhetoric. Non- never mind that rhetoric. He knows that Turkish interests connect the country and society to those places. And that was very much true also in, in the early days. So it's more than just tactical, it reflects this deeper interdependence that is in existence, and it's easy to
0: see in Turkey. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things in your book that although all this rhetoric is there, it is more nuanced than that, and that he still does reach out in quite real ways to the West and keeps links that he might, if you went by the rhetoric, think he was going to abandon. But how important to his psyche and to his political development was a sense of rejection by the West, because you know there are, there are there are many in the European Union who simply do not want Turkey in, possibly on religious grounds, on cultural grounds, whatever, and that must hurt many Turks, including Erdogan.
1: It's central, yes, but he's nothing exceptional. It's not about him; it's about pretty much anyone in Turkey, including those people who hate Erdogan's guts, to put it diplomatically. I mean the seculars. Felt double rejected because to them they actually carried the flag of Westernization, but even in those days, Turkey was not was not embraced, it was given the cold shoulder. And then you have an Islamist who early in his career slammed the West, and Erdogan um, was given credits and got all the support and love from Western governments. So <laughs> there is a demographic in Turkey which uh, is. It's totally out there erdogan but they have pretty much the same resentment uh, against against the, the west so this is pretty universal um and i think about erdogan is that he realized that he could actually harness this sentiment um because turkish nationalism this is a pretty potent force i mean it, it works across the board it mobilizes passions it, motivates people. So at the moment that it turned out that Turkey is not welcome and the sort of membership aspiration is a dead end street, and that was, to be clear, around 2007, certainly when uh, um, Nicolas Sarkozy became the president of France, Erdogan started to more and more exploit nationalism and anti-Western resentments And that escalated after 2013 and the Gezi Park protests where actually he adopted a rhetoric common uh, with the regime in the Kremlin that the West is not just rejecting Turkey, but actually actively plotting to subvert the uh, government, the legitimate government. And then you had the coup attempt. Um, So it went into stages uh, and part of it is um, just the generic identity orientation of of anybody in Turkey, this love-hate relationship with the West. Part of it is Erdogan's personal disappointment, but also there's a strong element of pragmatic electioneering given the new set of circumstances it became just politically more profitable to be at least rhetorically, if not in substance behind closed door to be anti-Western and to exploit that. And maybe also in 2016, there is an element of sincerity because Erdogan in his closest circle do believe, but that's not about the EU; it's about the U.S. They do believe that the U.S. was involved or at least turn a blind eye to the conspiracy.
0: Yeah, this is the the coup. We'll, we'll, again, we'll, we'll get onto that too. But I just wanted to deal with some other of these sort of big issues in Turkish politics. So there's the EU and then there's the Kurds. Now then, again, there's been a significant development in his view on that, hasn't there? Can you talk us through that and explain why his ideas have changed?
1: Now his attitude to the Kurdish issue evolved all the time. Ideologically you could well argue that Islam is much more relaxed vis-a-vis the political demands of the Kurds because so long as the Kurds belong to the same umbrella and that is Islam, they it's part of the country which is where piety is at its peak, you could actually co opt Kurdish Nationalism and redefine Turkish nationalism in a more inclusive way whereas Islam, rather than ethnicity, plays a more central role. So that's on the ideological level. On the more pragmatic level, Erdogan was hoping for Kurdish faults in the neck-to-neck contests. And sometimes that was tricky because um, the Kurds started establishing their own parties And they were competing or staying neutral uh, when the AKP was fighting for its survival. But at the same time, for many Islamists, they could see the Kurds, the Kurdish nationalists of the left, as as fellow victims of the heavy-handed state. But that was was the first stage. The second stage was when everyone actually saw the prospect. And that's actually sort of a depressing story. He saw a prospect once he was in power of striking a deal with uh, the PKK, so the armed wing of the Kurdish national movement, which would pacify Turkey. It will be some sort of a Good Friday agreement, uh, will secure his long-term survival in power because the Kurds uh, will, if not vote for AKP, and they'll be... Uh, in coalition they'll be sharing power with, with him and also strengthen turkey's hand in the region because once you solve your internal uh, problem then you could actually go out uh, in place like uh, Iraq uh, also Syria and Iran and engage so turkey would be a model how you resolve those issues so that was that was the high point he had two attempts at Peace process, one in 2008 2009, and a more serious one in 2013. Unfortunately, this opportunity was pondered, and it's a long conversation who is to blame? Was it Erdogan feeling threatened by the Kurdish movement and their reluctance to play to his agenda of establishing a one man show in Ankara? Or was it the PKK overplaying its hand and starting? a guerrilla warfare in 2015, uh, especially in urban areas. But either way, basically right now we are back to square one, despite all the hope 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where actually Turkey is decidedly into suppressing the PKK, uh, defeating it, hunting it down, whether it's in the southeast or, or in northern Iraq. Recurrent operation and indeed in Syria uh, as well. But the fact of the matter, and that was made clear as early as the 1990s when the Turkish forces managed to capture the founder of the PKK, Abdullah Erdogan, the fact of the matter is that this is a war neither party can win. So there is no way the PKK can be eradicated, uh, but they're not in a position to capture any significant territory in Turkey. And in fact, there is no prospect because many Kurds these days live outside their native region they in in western turkey so we have a long-term stalemate but it will take another generation before politicians on all sides realize that they need to talk and come up with a solution
0: now you've mentioned a couple of issues that, you know, there's been a clear development of his views on the EU and on the Kurds. What about the, you know, one of those questions that is always there in Turkish politics, attitudes to the Armenian genocide? What has what his view on that been? Well, he never, to me, never had a clear view. Early
1: in those good days when Turkey was open to the European Union. There was a major breakthrough because all of a sudden there was no taboo anymore. A landmark conference took place in 2005 when the G word was openly mentioned. Uh, Then you had years and years where 24th of April, the Genocide Day was commemorated uh, openly by leftists, uh, liberals, and uh, activists. So the AKP period opened the debate, the discussion about what had happened and its implications into the present. And Erdogan was not a fan. I think he was afraid of this problem because it was a red rag that could mobilize his nationalist opponents, that AKP is sort of giving, quote-unquote, Turkish enemies a platform so he was afraid this could get out of hand. But at the same time, he was not pushing back in any, in any ways. And unfortunately, that's all history now. The nationalist turn in Turkey, which sort of first led to the suppression of the liberals, then the collapse of the Kurdish peace process has also taken toll on the debate about the genocide. Now, the coalition between the AKP and the Nationalist Action Party has basically precluded any debates about the re- historical responsibility about reparation and so on yeah. and despite the fact that actually you do have an accommodation this discourse this um, sometimes from uh, higher up in Ankara in the sense that the genocide is an agenda pushed by the diaspora it's the Armenian community in Turkey, which, of course, has benefited under the AKP, including property being restored. So all those loyal citizens um, of for media descent have a place in Turkey and their rights uh, are, are are protected. Uh,
0: I was just wondering if we can go back to 2016, which you mentioned before in that coup attempt. And uh, uh, you know that revolves around the relationship with Fatullah Gulen. Can you just talk us through who Gulen is and what Erdogan's relationship with him was, and and you know is now in the light of that coup.
1: Well, it's a big, big discussion because Gulen was one of those religious leaders who built a powerful movement, uh, uniting supporters, media, businesses, and managed to actually infiltrate state institutions at, at many levels, and that was a project that uh, went through various stages starting from, from the 1960s. So for the AKP, Gülen was initially a fellow traveler, somebody who shared their religious outlook, who was also friendly towards the West, um, let it, it must be mentioned in that respect, different from Erbakan, but also somebody who could be useful as an ally because he had the commanding heights, he had the media, um, empire, he could um, sort of get the narrative about Islam being compatible with uh, w- the West, and he had people in, in the state machine. So that was, that was a natural coupling um, of, of the two uh, strengths in, in the Islamist movements. Um, now, the more interesting question is why is it that those two fell out? And there was a moment where actually the the influence of Gulen was so um, was so strong, and he was critical, for instance, uh, for winning the 2010 referendum, when he did mobilize a lot of a lot of support. But I think ultimately it's the same boring story about leadership and, and who is being the top dog uh, in 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 the movement. Um, Erdogan felt threatened by the Gulenists and their, um, you know, just not Erdogan, other people in the AKP probably as well, and their rising influence, which was there uh, behind closed door. So this whole talk about a parallel state, despite being instrumentalized by Erdogan, was not without uh, substance. Um, I think around 2010, soon after the referendum, the cracks were were already there. Gulen didn't approve of the Turkish turn against Israel. Uh, later on, Gulenis leaked recordings of Turkish officials negotiating with the PKK. There was the veiled criticism here and there. And certainly after the Gezi Park protests, the Gulenis went full frontal against, against Erdogan. So Erdogan felt that he had helped build a monster and was personally felt threatened by by the gulenists and and he brought the fight into the open even though it was the gulenists who started this anti-corruption investigation in december 2013. so yeah it's it's long story short i think it's about power it's not about ideological differences about different outlooks or attitudes but the struggle has taken toll on, on turkey so the ultimate the the, the ultimate uh, victims are the ranks uh, rank and file turks because first of all the coup once you start this gamble there is no positive ending if the Gulenists and their um, allies, and by the way, there's a lot of unknown about the mechanics and what happened and how, how it happened and who was in the driving seat, but it's safe to assume it was the Gulenists playing a critical role there. But once you choose to use military violence against a legitimate government, then you basically are setting Turkey on the path of a, a civil war, and that's something on the scale happened, that fateful night. But as we saw, the alternative was not much better either, because, or maybe it was it was better, it was the lesser evil, but it brought in its wake huge costs, because Erdogan threatened, he was probably fighting for his physical survival that night of the 15th of, of, of July. He turned out very vindictive, and, and he inflicted, that the repressions on pretty much anyone who happened to be against Erdogan, including the leader of of the Kurdish party, selecting Demirtas, has de democratized Turkey. I mean, it put Turkey on this authoritarian project.
0: Yeah, I always thought the Western commentators were unsympathetic to that. I mean, he could have been killed that night, uh, uh, and so that's bound to affect his judgment, right? I mean, it would with anyone.
1: Yes, uh, I mean that, that's that's true. Although it's very clear that the repression spread out to people who had no connection whatsoever to the coup and selecting the should would be a good example. Or people who spoke out against the coup and had no love lost for, 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 for Gülen. But you, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was a, a critical moment for everyone. when, I mean, he was fighting for his survival. I mean, he, he did go to prison after the 1997 bloodless coup he was facing threat of party closure in 2008, but it's nothing compared to actually facing a commando team sent to basically queue on the spot or maybe capture you. And so for him, it was a turning point.
0: bound to have been a turning point, yes. Okay, so now then, let's just broaden it out. I can ask you some questions about the future, but I one issue I'd like you to encapsulate is, you know, what's more important to Erdogan now? Is it his nationalism or his Islamism? I mean, I, I mean, maybe they come together with Ottoman rhetoric. I mean, it's also worth saying that he doesn't seem to extend much Muslim solidarity to the Uyghurs for, you know, purely pragmatic reasons, like many other Muslim leaders. So when you put all that in the mix, where does where how does he weigh up Islamism and nationalism? I don't think he sees a,
1: a choice between the two. He thinks those two can work together in sync. And to be honest, the experience of the past six seven years uh, demonstrates that's the case. The sort of conservative tinged Turkish nationalist ideology uh, he represents is internally coherent, and it plays with the sufficient number of voters. I think his basic motivation is not ideological. It's political. It's about him uh, clinging to power no, no matter what. And it's become more difficult with, with time for two reasons. One reason is that uh, the opposition has gotten its act together. Um, it's mounting a very serious challenge and the economy is tanking. I mean, looking at inflation in Turkey and the cost of living crisis. That's not reason number one. The second reason is that in a system like uh, the one Erdogan has built, uh, there is no exit option. It's difficult to step down from power. It's the bicycle theory, as it were. Um, You can either go to exile because uh, if you lose the elections, the opposition probably will be after you, scapegoat you. And many people in your ranks might defect as well, once you become a liability. So exile or, or prison. And it's not just about you, it's your family, all the business clients you've cultivated over the years. So the stake is very high for him. And therefore, his priority at this stage, I think, is just to survive in power and to keep going.
0: You think he'll die in office, do you? That, that's the case.
1: But even if he retires and passes the baton to somebody else, that's ridden with risks as well, not least because there is no obvious successor. He has tried several successors to prime them, but they have turned out to not be good enough, not to be credible. And there's nobody else to be seen. And in the system which is so personalistic, where Erdogan is a towering figure and takes all the decisions and where you fit in the hierarchy is very much dependent on the sort of relationship we have with 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 the leader. Uh, once you exit, be it for health reasons, or just you're not able to perform the job anymore, there's a huge gap. So the future of, of Turkey post one at least for some time, uh, might be very bleak because there'll be chaos uh, in the aftermath of his departure, I'm afraid.
0: Well, political chaos, but I'm also just finally interested in in where Turkey might head in, in terms of you know, ideological issues, because, you know, here is this Islamist leader uh, who, who, you know, is tapping into clearly deep wells of public support. And yet, uh, I think the polls show that Turkey is becoming quite clearly more secular. So there is a contradiction there, isn't there?
1: Yes, I mean that's that's a very good observation. That if there was ever a project to change society fundamentally in terms of lifestyle and outlook, it's it's not working. And what has worked is making society more accepting to conservatism and and, and religion, bringing religion into the mainstream through various means through. Um, you know making piety acceptable bringing religious education into the fold but also i must say that um, the main opposition parties uh, including the Kemalist um, republican people's party are much more open to to islam that's why akrem imamo won the race in istanbul because he embraced piety so that's uh, that's, that's one side of it but the other a side of it is again that there is no next generation which prays five times a day and conforms with all the precepts of Islam and has this Islamist outlook on life. So it's it's, it's really complicated, and you have those two trends living side by side. and And it also speaks to the strength and the resilience of Turkish society and politics that, despite turmoil polarization, authoritarianism, violence. They're ways of synthesizing, of accommodating. It's also reflected in the fact that you have an opposition against Erdogan, and that's a function of just having this towering figure that bridges differences to do with lifestyle and secularism-Islamism uh, divide. You have Islamist parties, but also you have the secularists inside. And then also you arguably have Turkish nationalists and, and the Kurds, albeit uh, as a hidden partner in, in this coalition. So the fact that you could uh, cooperate across those deep cleavages speaks volumes about the kind of country Turkey is, despite all the, all the predicaments it had to deal with.
0: Well, he's a fascinating figure and you've uh, really helped us understand him. So thanks thanks very much indeed. Thank you.